Welcome to Out of the Box Radio with me, your host, Christine Blasdale. Out of the Box Radio is a weekly podcast of audible ear candy dedicated to bringing a fresh perspective on this thing that we call life. And each and every week, we're going to be diving into the topics that matter most with lively conversations on issues such as health, wellness, and transformational healing, all with the goal of creating a better world and becoming a happier human being. I will be your tour guide for this epic adventure, and each and every week we're going to be embarking on a journey with the ultimate goal being transformation to our highest potential. And now, let's get out of the box. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Out of the Box with Christine. I'm your host, Christine Blasdale, and I am so excited today. It's like Christmas in March. I almost said February, (laughs) but it's March. And I am really excited because somebody that I really look up to, someone that I respect so highly in the industry of broadcast journalism is my guest today. And you're going to get to meet her as well. So if you don't know about her, you, you just stay tuned. Laura Flanders is my guest today. And since 2008, the Laura Flanders show has reached 5.3 million viewers on YouTube. Congratulations. Uh, her program is syndicated on KCET in Los Angeles here, Link TV and Free Speech TV for a combined 7. Point, or, I'm sorry, 74 million homes. She's going into 74 million homes. And it's so wonderful to have her here because, like I said, I am a huge fan. I, uh, I respect the work that you do. And I was so pleased to have met, met you recently in person. So now I want all my listeners and viewers to know about you. <laughs> well, Welcome. I'm happy to be here with you, Christine. Thank you so much. And it was a pleasure for me to meet you too. You do you person's work there at KPFK and on the air with your, with your blog and your podcast. And it's a pleasure to put a face to the name. Thank you. Well, we, you know, we've got to, we've got to fund those great radio stations <laughs> and funding, as you know, for, Progressive media, progressive journalism is uh, few and far between sometimes. So we have to get clever in our in our fundraising, don't we? Yeah, well, that was a big part of what you were doing when we met, which was holding part of a series, I think, of KPFK Speaks, which I think is a great new thing. I think that the independent bookstores are our model, that contrary to popular belief, they did not die out when the uh, monopolies came to town and instead they figured out how to survive and even thrive. And I think the big way they did it was by being personal, being one-on-one, being actively present in people's communities. And that's what you're doing there at KPFK, which makes all the difference. And I think it is the, the way of the future. Well, I, I love you. You have on your um, you have on your website at lauraflanders.org. Also, I know you do say this. I think you say this in your opening, but the place where the people who say it can't be done take a back seat to the people who are doing it. Yeah, I stole I it from that. Jim Hightower. I love that. Oh, and I love Jim. <laughs> he gave me permission. He said it was okay. Um, but yeah, you know, our show is very much kind of trying to lift radical spirits and give people a sense that what they're usually told is impossible is not only possible, but probably our best uh, option for creating a, a livable world. Uh, and I think that's our focus on the program after years and years of covering wars and 
conflicts and crises and crashes, I thought, what the heck? We need to talk about how else we would do things and look around for models of that. So that's what we've been doing for the last um, 10 years on the show. Well, I, I love that especially because, you know, the, the show is called Out of the Box with Christine, right? And it's, it's about thinking outside the box. And what I found in the 20 years that I've been in progressive broadcast journalism is that there can be a tendency to wring our hands and talk about all of the horrific things that are going on in the world and all the wars and all of the, I mean, and we do, we do need to shine a light on that. But as progressive, socially conscious human beings, we tend to get overwhelmed and then we don't do anything. Yeah, like, I had a friend once who said, I, I can't, I can't <laughs> handle, what did she say? I can't handle body bags in the morning. Oh. So I was doing a morning show that did tend to focus on the grim. And she said, you know, I just can't handle body bags in the morning. And I thought, you know, that's probably true of a lot of listeners. And we, yes, we have to cover um, the horrendous things that are going on. But if we don't give people some sense of what else is possible. I listen, I, I listen to a guy called Maurice Mitchell. He's now the head of the um, Working Families Party. And he gave us his first uh, TV interview after becoming the, just the second director of the WFP. And he came from the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for Black Lives. And he said, you know, we on the left have done a very good job of tearing down the kind of um, consensus about the way things are. We've done a less good job of providing people with an alternative. Now, I, I think it can sometimes be a kind of cheap shot of progressives. Well, if you don't have a perfect plan for how to run the universe peacefully, then you don't, you know, what good are you? But I, I do think it's upon us to notice when things are working and to give some publicity to the good stuff as well as the bad. So that's what I'm doing. It's clearly what you're doing. And I think it's as part of a diet of media coverage, um, really important that that part is there. Well, it, it also, it plays an interesting trick on the mind that when you're, when, and, and I mean, just recently, and we'll get into the coronavirus, trust me. Oh, yeah. um, you, just, you just took a flight and I'm about to in a little <laughs> bit. So yeah, we're going to talk about that. But when we're inundated with, with fear and, and, and overwhelm and my gosh, this machine, the military industrial complex that it is and politics and the whole thing, we tend to think that that's all there is. And when we actually get to hear of stories of people doing something in their community who have no resources sometimes, right? It's just by their heart. It's just by their intention. I interviewed one time Wangari Matai and I, my, my whole life changed after mm. that. You started and, planting trees? Yes. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't even so much that. The thing was, was that faced with all of the odds that she was, being a black woman, being a woman in a country that was so uh, horrific to women in general and had no power, quote unquote, she sparked a movement. She sparked a movement. And that, when we see more people that are, when we, when we hear about the stories about people that are actually doing that, it puts in us a feeling and a motivation that, hey, you know what? I can do that. I can do yeah. something. Yeah. And the alternative works too, is when you are somebody making a difference and you get no attention on television or radio or in print and your friends don't get to hear about it. It's like going to a rally or a demonstration and then you come home and you turn on the TV and it's as if it never happened. It's like how many times are you going to keep doing that if there's no reflection of your work in your 
in your peer group, in your community. So I think it's not only important for those who are watching, it's important for those who are doing to get some sense of a reflection and echo of what they've done. So I think that's part of what we're doing too, is trying to give affirmation to those who are doing that kind of work and an opportunity to share what they're doing in a way that encourages people to believe that A, there's good stuff happening and B, stuff that they can do or that yes. they can be a doer in their community doing something completely different, but uh, that they can have an effect. And, the, and I think it's more and more important in these periods, in this period where we talk about a kind of upsurge of um, populist, if you want to call it, I think of it more as kind of, um, I don't know, there's a, there's a mix of, there's a, it, there's a there's a intersection between a sort of strong man politics, and it is always men, it seems, and a kind of nihilist, tendency in the world, which I think is born a lot of despair and a lot of a sense that there's nothing I can do. So I'll elect you to do it for me, keep me safe, fight my war, make America great again. Um, I don't need to know how you do it. You go ahead and do it. Um, I was there at the Republican convention four years ago, and I've been thinking about it a lot that the slogan for the Trump team at that convention was, yes, you can. Yes, you can. So when he came out and he said, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do that, the chorus from the audience was, yes, you can. Yes, you will. You know, it wasn't a we thing. <laughs> it wasn't like Bernie Sanders, you know, this isn't about me, it's we, it's blah, 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 we, 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 it's we. No, it's not that. It was really you. And I think that was and continues to be the major distinction uh, between the right and the left as to how we imagine change happens. And so it's, in, it's directly counter to our interests to have a media that A, focuses only on individuals and downplays collective action, and B, gives people a sense that they can't do anything because that is actively engaged with creating the climate that gives rise to the people like Trump. Well, and what you were saying earlier too about, you know, doing something in your community or doing something good for others or having something amazing and nobody reports on it. It's the same as it was in 2000, uh, I think it was 2016 with Bernie Sanders campaign. It was like he had, and it's the same today. It's like yeah. he, he has tens of thousands of people come to see him, come to support him. Yeah. He's raising 40, what did he raise, like $46 million in a couple days or something. And it's as if he doesn't exist or yeah. he's painted even by the quote unquote liberal media. <laughs> we know that that's not a reality, but, but on the big, on the corporate, on the television, let's put that on the telly. Um, it's as if he either doesn't exist or that he's some kind of crazy, you know, Stalinist. Yeah, he's gone from not existing at all to suddenly being the huge, overwhelming threat that everybody needs to do <laughs> yes. something about. And the person that gets no attention now is Elizabeth Warren, who I have to say, I, I think has every right to be furious at the press. She got you know a minute of attention last fall, and that's sort of been it ever since. Um, yeah. So in terms of the, who's getting the coverage, the great thing we have now is the internet, where people, particularly I think on the Bernie side, are able to affirm themselves through, the social, through social media. And they can no longer be led to believe that they weren't at the rally that they were at because <laughs> the, the, the pictures exist uh, coming to them from their friends. I mean, I was in Queens at the Bernie rally when he returned back from having had his heart attack. And you heard the press kind of saying, well, the park is full. It's like the park wasn't just full. The park carries 20, holds 25,000 people. The park was flooded all the side streets, all down the road. You could just see that something was happening and the media didn't give it justice, but didn't matter. The people on the ground were able to share what they saw and what they felt.
And what's really important is when you look at the crowds, when you do look at the people who support, because when, when we're in our own homes and we're on our little technical devices, that's one thing. But when you're there, when you look around and you see all of the different, all of the different ages, all of the different socioeconomic backgrounds, all of the different types of people that come to support him, that's what really a, the fabric of America is to me. Yeah. And when you yeah. see a, a Trump rally, I, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, you know, they'll put one black person in the front. I don't yeah. know how much they pay him or what they do, but it's really not, it's just, it's just not a reflection of America. And it's just, I wish that, well, I wish that, uh, that the media did cover him a little bit more uh, properly. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I think, well, I've been thinking for many months now that I wish if you're going to cover everything Trump says, which is, seems to be what the commercial media love to do, um, or better yet, what he tweets, um, also cover those rallies, cover who is actually at his rallies, and not just who, but what organizations are selling what products, um, what kinds of groups are represented. Because there's a way of giving attention, which is just sort of puff pieces. And then there's a way of attention. If you're going to have reporters on the, feet, on the ground, show us what's actually there. Because I think we would find it very interesting who was having tailing, tailgate parties and who was selling a membership to what organizations in the hallways of those Trump rallies. And we would get a much clearer picture of the threat that we're up against. Yeah. Um, which isn't just despair and alienation and nihilism. It's also organized right-wing and white supremacist organizations um, and power that is very frightening. And since also we are, and since you just recently had taken a flight, now now we have Mike Pence in charge of the coronavirus. I love, well, who was it that said the best thing we can do for the coronavirus is to, to quarantine Mike Pence? <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be the case. Jeez, he doesn't. Well, he just kind of, but he, with women. He's he's so. he's been in the shadows, so to speak. This whole, I mean, the spotlight has obviously been on Trump because anytime he speaks, he, he, you know, the seven deadly sins is represented in with with Trump whenever he speaks. Gluttony, you know, uh, greed, all of that. But Mike Pence, and not many people know uh, much about him because he hasn't spoken a whole lot. Um, I do know his um, aversion to uh, gay uh, <laughs> and women. I think I think he's against women Wasn't and women. <laughs> he won't have a meeting with one on her on her own, as far as I remember. Oh well. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, you, you wouldn't want to, you know, subject yourself to temptation. So what what are your thoughts on the? Well, first of all, what are your thoughts? No, on it's. The, I mean, we're joking. About, we're joking about it, but it's actually terrifying. I mean, yeah. the people that he um, supports internationally. I hear from it mostly internationally. Um, the religious missionary organizations, the religious right groups that Pence has been actively involved in supporting, have been for years sending missionaries around the world to advocate, you know, I don't mind them advocating Christianity, but uh, they actively oppose the use of condoms, the use of safe sex mechanisms. Um, they oppose women's equality um, and are actively involved in setting back women's health, uh, let alone abortion access, but simply women's health and empowerment. And when you have that kind of attitude to public health, that your ideological or religious agenda comes be before you'll teach people that condoms can save their lives. God knows what you do with the coronavirus. Um, this is not the person to put public health in, in the hands of. So I think Trump really doesn't care about being president. 
meaning I think he likes the power and the possibility of making money for his family fortune, his family company. But um, I don't think he really cares about being responsible for the public health. Uh, that's what it seems like to me. Uh, so he sort of sloughed this off on the next, on his next in command. It's also a crisis. Uh, and he doesn't respond well to crisis. He's good at creating them, but he's <laughs> not very good at responding to them. So I think it's very frightening. And I also think it's frightening that a lot of Democrats, and this is what I bumped into when I was talk talking to people over the last few days, a lot of Democrats seem to be embracing the future of a pandemic as a way to get rid of the president. Um, wow, what, is that, what does that say about our choices? We'll prefer a pandemic over a president? That's pretty scary. Well, and also what I've seen is this... Um First of all, uh, the, the media is really cranking out major, major fear at every turn. I mean, to the, to the point where it's, it's, it's like, it's constant, right? You, you can get updates on the coronavirus and you can, and I know that there's, um, I know that there is a major concern with the, with the spread of it globally. And I don't think that they really know how it's actually uh, spread because it's something that's, that's relatively new to them. But what I am also getting is that people um, on the left and the right are like, it's like that thing of daddy, do something, yeah, you know, yeah. get us the vaccine. You know, we're, we're, we need to have something right away. Now, do I, would I necessarily trust this administration to give out mandatory vaccines of Lord knows what to millions of people? Um, the follow-up on care on the, any kind of adverse reactions or anything like that from this administration? No. Well, but it goes back to our infrastructure. I mean, if you don't have an infrastructure of both information and public health, you're in a real crisis. So I think that we've, what we've seen over the last few weeks, and we saw last week in spades, was we have a democracy crisis, for sure. Um, and then we have this public health crisis, to which I would add a, a journalism crisis. I remember very strongly a story that I read back in 2000, I think it was 18, uh, as part of that big flow of articles that appeared after the 2016 election, where people were talking about the loss of local newspapers. And it seems to be getting less attention recently, but it's not that that loss has stopped. Um, but we've seen a, a massive decline in local newspaper survivors. Uh, there, the capacity of local independent papers or even family-owned papers of a bigger, you know, the decline of local newspapers has become phenomenal over the last few years. They simply cannot make a go of it. Um, and the big chains have been buying them up and, and sort of uh, stripping them for whatever assets they had and then leaving them to die. It all sounds very sad and bad for local information, but nobody apparently needs those local papers more than epidemiologists who use local reporting to spot local outbreaks of disease, whether it's flu or food poisoning. It's your local library. It's your local clinic, if you have one. And it's the local paper or the local radio station that yes. report on that stuff, the sorts of stations that report on the school lunch menu. That local media is the place that says, stay home today, the air quality is bad. You're not going to get that from your monopolized chain media that's reporting something that was recorded on the other side of the country six hours ago. So that sticks in my mind. And I, there's an organization called, I think it's called publichealthjournalists.org or something. And they published a piece two years ago about how epidemiologists were deeply concerned about the incapacity to um, follow disease back then. And I'm going to get in touch with them this week and find out what they're saying about coronavirus because we're in worse state than we were then now uh, in terms of local media. 
And again, it's another reason why you need to support your local radio station like KPFK. I mean, that's what you'll turn on when you want to find out, is there a health crisis that I need to know about and what actually should I be doing about it? I mean, after the president, I'll stop, but after the president's speech last week on coronavirus, if you turned on cable news that night, you saw a lot of discussion of it, but it was all of his style, what he said was true, what he said wasn't true, what he tweeted, how he couldn't spell coronavirus in his tweets. Okay, it's worth a few laughs. But what they didn't share was what should people do about coronavirus? Right. How serious is the threat? And what are the different procedures or the different protocols people should follow in different parts of the country? Uh, and instead, we have this kind of blanket terror, which is not relevant to everybody. Um, most of the country is not going to be a site of this pandemic, uh, but some of the, the country is. And if you're in a city like New York or LA, where you have a lot of traffic of people from other parts of the world, um, and just a lot of churn of people and products, your situation is very different than if you're living in, you know, a remote rural Rem region rural. or even right. a small town that doesn't have that kind of churn. So what we're seeing is mass uh, media coverage that isn't really covering the local issues because we don't have local media. We're seeing hysterical reporting on the political front, laughing or panicking, but whatever it is. Um, and we're not getting the sort of reliable information that people need. I, I listened to the radio the other day here in New York and you had the mayor of all people. And I like this mayor, de Blasio, but his recommendation to people was that they go to their local health provider. And then the next minute or so, a reporter called, I mean, a, a doctor called in and said, whatever you do, do not go to your doctor's office because you're going to be sitting around in a waiting room, infecting a whole bunch of already a little bit sick, potentially sick people. Um, and your doctor doesn't have what she or he needs to uh, assess whether you have coronavirus. They don't have that testing stuff, uh, technology here in that, in that office. So the thing to do is to stay home. It's like, well, if we can't even get that messaging right coming out of the mayor's mouth in New York City, where they have a big public health department, what's happening in a small town that has very little in the way of local information? So I think we've got all of the worst of, of our infrastructural gaps um, revealing themselves yeah. in this crisis. I, and I, the media is front and center. I agree. I agree, and and I'll I'll tell you something too. I, it it doesn't surprise me the coronavirus or H one N one or the, whatever all the different uh, Zika, all these different right. things, because also we tinker as human beings. I think we have a death wish. I really do because as human beings we have. I remember was it like five years ago, six years ago, reading a story. It should have been front page news, but it was just kind of like, you know, just a little quick blip and then it went away that there are military bases in the united states and across the world but here in the united states where they reconstituted the spanish flu the night i think it was 1918 flu the, the the they reconstituted it. they dug up a corpse they got the virus and they reconstituted it in a military lab and i'm thinking that killed 50 million fucking why people. would you do that right why so. would you do that but then from a you know a really sicko military perspective, it makes great sense. You don't have to drop a lot of bombs. Your infrastructure, all the buildings and everything stay, but the people go. Yeah. And I thought, I thought that was the most dangerous, crazy thing for anyone to do, but they've been doing it for so many years. It's, 
in different kinds of viruses, different kinds of biochemical, you know, germ warfare type things, that something like this is bound to happen. Um, but now when people are afraid and the media is telling them to be afraid, I think that the panic aspect needs to be, um, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing people should do is subscribe to their local independent media, pay your pledge so that you have that media there when you need it. And then I think, you know, try to gather together with others and share information with somebody who is informed, whether it's an infectious disease doctor or a reporter on public health or, or your local emergency nurse person who's been briefed. Don't just be endlessly spreading information on the internet. Don't rely on leaders yeah. who don't know what they're talking about. Um, and yeah, try not to get totally panicked. Wash your hands seems to be the main yeah. strategy here. And also, like you, like you said, if you're, feeling, if you're not feeling well, because even if you've got a cold or a flu, stay home. Right. Stay home. Make a few phone calls. Find out what you should do. Exactly. Stay home. Um, so I, and then I, that goes, I mean, but then that addresses the question of how terrified people, I mean, we could talk about this forever. I mean, public health under a private system terrifies people to get help because they're worried it will cost them money. So there was a story in the paper yesterday in the New York times yesterday about people who had been quarantined, mandatorily quarantined by the government for multiple weeks. And during those weeks that they were held on a military base, they had to make several visits to an uh, uh, pediatric wing of a local hospital because it was a six-year-old who was coughing and maybe had the symptoms. And they come home, everything's fine. They get a $4,000 bill, 3,800 something, something bill for the, for the, for the hospitalized hospital visits. And they're like, we didn't think we were going to be charged for this. Um, And that sort of messaging will also terrify people from getting care. Again, why we cannot have a private system. This is not argument. Number one for Medicare for all is uh, it's better for public health. Because oh. in a situation like this, people will hide that they're sick. And then exactly. with, with the type of precarious work people have, sure, on the one side, more people are working from home, which is good. But on the other, or they have that possibility, thanks to the internet, which is opening up possibilities for people, particularly middle class and upper class workers to work from home. But if, you're, if you have a precarious um, day job, gig type job that relies on you doing as much uh, you know, bulk as you possibly can or whatever, of whatever it is, of driving or caring or um, the service work that you're doing, you can't afford to miss a day or work from home. No. So uh, again, no. Yeah. again, it reveals another big crack in our system. Exactly. If somebody um, is terrified of losing a day or a week or two weeks of work, which means they could lose their home or they can't feed their kids, they're not going, they're going to do everything they can to just keep working. And right. we, need, we need to have that system in place. Yeah. Universal health care for all. First of all, should it's, I've been in the, I've, I've had a broken leg. I had a, I had a staph infection on my leg and I'll oh. tell you something, knowing that I was covered, knowing that I could spend that week in the hospital and all that medication and all the surgeries and everything wasn't going to cost me a dime and that right. I had a job that I wouldn't lose because right. I couldn't be there. Right. Um, first of all, it also helped heal me faster. Right. That level of stress can be the killer on its own. 
Of course, of course. Um, I know we only have a couple more minutes left because you've got oh, a very, <laughs> very busy, very busy day. But um, let our listeners and our viewers know uh, if there's stuff that's coming up. That sure, maybe absolutely. Up well, I, I, um, I, I uh, strongly encourage people to check out the website where you'll find archives of all of our programming. That's lauraflanders.org. We produce a podcast as well as the TV show. Um, upcoming shows include this amazing piece we've been doing for a few weeks, uh, researching into alternative types of policing in Newark, involving former gang members and people who've been incarcerated coming out and actually intervening before conflict takes out takes place in the streets of Newark. And they're working in collaboration or at least in consultation with the police force, which you would think would never happen. Um, but I'm interviewing the police chief tomorrow and he'll tell me his side of the story. But it sounds like there's an amazing model emerging there in Newark. Wow. Um, we've got programming out this week, I think, about One Billion Rising, the great mobilization by Eve Ensler. Um, that is uh, a great episode with a Puerto Rican activist and musician talking about the importance of dance and movement as part of your um, activist um, toolkit. A few weeks from now, I think we have uh, there's an amazing new book coming out by Mab Segrist, who wrote Memoir of a Race Traitor, and one of our pr most important um, writers about race, class, and gender, sexuality. She has written an amazing, um, really a biography of a psychiatric hospital in, in, in Georgia uh, that for many years was the biggest, um, they called it a lunatic asylum, the biggest insane asylum um, in the world. But that was during the height of, se of segregation and then the and then, um, Civil War and then Jim Crow in Georgia. So you had, she talks about how contemporary psychology was basically um, crucibled, was, was created in the yeah. crucible of American race politics in the um, U.S. South and in Georgia. And what that means about psychiatry, never wanting to talk about race, never wanting to talk about politics. Why might people be having nervous breakdowns in 1964, Georgia? Uh, yeah, right. I don't know. Um, <laughs> right. Why might you be hearing voices? I don't know. Uh, how did our, uh, our history get not just abstracted from us, but our conditions be abstracted from our understanding of our mental health? Mm -hmm. uh, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. So the book's called Administrations of Lunacy. We did a feature. I, did, I traveled all around the South with her, and we'll be releasing that in a couple of weeks. So people should definitely check out the show. Uh, and in the fall, if you're on our mailing list, if you have become a subscriber to the podcast, you will have... Um, First, uh, heads up information about our syndication on public television, which is what is next on the agenda Fantastic. for us. Yay. We're going to public TV in September. So for about, um, we should be starting in about 20 stations, 25 stations in about September. And if you want to make sure that your station is one of those or that you know when the show is playing, uh, become a subscriber. We'll be able to be in touch with you like that. You also get my weekly commentaries. I write a commentary pretty much every week. That that's comes out brilliant. Stuff. I'm so really, happy for that. Support, that's great, but it, you don't have to. I'm so happy for the success of getting, of you getting out on television as yeah, well. well we're getting, doing our best job here. We're doing the best we can here. Yes. Now yes. is the time. Yes, it is. And I want to just thank you so very much. I want to encourage people, please do check out lauraflanders.org. Check out our show. Subscribe to her podcast. It's available on all the major platforms, iTunes, 
I believe it's also on, I'm sure it's on Spotify. It's on Spotify everywhere. from those places. We have actually the forum that we did at the, uh, that where we met the next day I went and did this forum with James Fonda and Janet Venezuela from East Yard Community for Environmental Justice. Fantastic discussion there at the UCLA Hammer. And that will be soon available only to our podcast subscribers. So sign ah, on up. There's another, there's another reason to subscribe. Another reason to, to do it. Thank you so much, Laura. I just, I, I appreciate the work you do okay. so much. You too. Ah, keep it Thanks up. Thanks so much. You too. All and right. you're welcome back anytime on Out of the Box okay. with Christine. I want to thank you wonderful listeners and viewers as well for staying tuned. Remember, you can find out more information about this show on outofthebox.withchristine.com. And if you want to find out more information about me, you can go to christineblasdale.com. All right. Until next time, just make sure you stay out of that damn box. Bye for now. <laughs>